Hello, this is Zach Baggins. I am sorry you hate me so much, but I love your podcast, Mothers of Mayhem. It is very spooky and it scares me so. Oh Christ, I've just made in my pants. So I drink till the night becomes another day and the day's just another little thing in our way. There's something about the way you beat me down that I'll never learn. You're the pint of no return. The pain in my chest, the stain on your dress, the glass in my eye. But this life is a joke and death is the punch. I Beep beep kids. Welcome to Mothers of Mayhem, an extreme horror podcast. This is your weird book mom, Marion, bringing you another very special episode of the show today. This is session three of my Hidden Voices of Horror discussion panel series. And since a discussion panel usually involves more than one person, you might be confused by the fact that I am alone right now. Um, Today's episode focuses on the mental health community and our representation within the horror genre. We will also be breaking down the ways horror is commonly used for therapeutic trauma processing, cathartic release, and coping. I have five remarkable authors on deck waiting to jump into this Zoom room and chat it up with me, but there are some things that I want to talk to you all about first. So I am a registered nurse. Mental health is my practice specialty. I am ANCC board certified in psychiatry. I have worked in the mental health field for 14 years, inpatient, emergency room, intensive outpatient programming, as well as state hospital, step down, adult residential. And now I am a trainer of safety escalation and behavioral crisis management for healthcare providers. Not only am I a psychiatric professional, but I have struggled with my own mental health challenges throughout my life, and I have been diagnosed with major depressive disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, and post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, There was also a time in my early adulthood when I struggled with various personality disorder symptoms. I intensely invested myself in dialectical behavioral therapy for quite a few years. And I am happy to say I was able to resolve most of those issues and achieve greater mindfulness regarding my emotional regulation, interpersonal relationship dynamics, self-awareness, all those wonderful things. Um, What I'm about to say might be considered a hot take, But I believe it to be the absolute truth. So anyone who tells you they have never struggled with mental health issues is totally full of it. (laughs) Mental health exists on a continuum, my friends, much like our physical medical health does. So let me show you a picture here. Give me one second. 
So here we have this beautiful picture that I made for you. Um, for those of you who are listening and not watching on YouTube, the image I have up on the screen is a long horizontal line with two arrows, one on each end. The arrows are pointing in opposite directions. The far right arrow is labeled stability. Stability refers to when we are capable of good emotional regulation and we can handle stressors and triggers without them overly disrupting our ability to function. On the far left side here, we have severe instability. Severe instability refers to a time in our lives when mental health concerns have caused us significant disruption to our ability to function and to cope. Now, that being said, every person on this planet has a point on this continuum that we consider to be their baseline. So... Let's look at the baseline. Your baseline is the way you tend to experience and handle life on an average day. Your baseline point on this continuum will change over the duration of your life, depending on how things evolve for you. But we tend to hover around certain baseline points for significant periods of time. So someone like myself, who has been lucky enough to have relative success managing their mental health challenges, may perceive themselves as having a baseline point closer to the right end of this continuum. So I can handle my triggers and my, my stressors relatively well, all things considered. Now, someone who struggles with a chronic treatment-resistant mental health diagnosis or who has not yet identified that they need help may actually have a baseline that exists farther down towards the left side of the continuum. Regardless of where our baseline is at any given time, life stressors, trauma, victories, achievements, all of these things, celebrations, losses, they cause us to slide up and down the continuum on an almost constant basis. And then when life settles again, we return to baseline. So here's the big takeaway. Even though you may never experience a mental illness significant enough to meet diagnostic criteria, there will always be times in your life where you will experience mental health challenges. It is unavoidable. It is a natural part of our human existence. So if it ever gets to a point where you feel your mental health challenge has negatively impacted your ability to function or cope with daily life, I strongly encourage you to reach out for help. There is no shame in it whatsoever. Never allow yourself to suffer needlessly. You may think in the moment that there is no hope, but I am here to tell you that all things are temporary and you are capable of modifying your ability to manage these difficult things. You know, according to studies completed in 2020 by NAMI, the National Alliance for Mental Illness, one in five U.S. adults experience mental illness each year. One in 20 U.S. adults will experience serious mental illness each year. One in six 
of American children between the ages of 6 to 17 experience a mental health disorder. 50% of all lifetime mental illness begins by the age of 14, and 75% of us have experienced mental illness by the age of 24. Suicide is the second leading cause of death among people aged 10 to 34, and 82% of adults admitted to inpatient mental health units have reported experiencing significant trauma. Sadly, in my experience, that number is probably inaccurately low due to the fact that many people will avoid admitting to having experienced trauma. And this is because of centuries old mental health stigmas. Mental health stigma is a still a very real problem. And we will be discussing stigma and how it is used as a horror trope in our discussion today. And before before I bring in the rest of the panel, I want to provide you with a bit of a heads up. Mental health discussions can be hard. It takes a lot of courage to come on a podcast and speak your personal truth. And because of the nature of this conversation, there may be some trauma disclosure on behalf of my guests. There may also be conversations about suicide, self-harm, substance abuse, and other forms of maladaptive coping or illness manifestations. So please protect your psyche and skip this episode if you believe it might be too much for you. You can always come back to us when you feel like you're ready. Also, because of the depth of information that we have to discuss regarding this topic, this episode could potentially be quite long. So I'm just warning you now. (laughs) As always, I will be keeping it as light and lively as possible. But this stuff has a natural heaviness to it. You know, everyone on the panel today, including myself, is diagnosed with one or more mental illnesses as they are defined by the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Illnesses, which you may also have heard uh, referenced to as the DSM-5. Any irreverent humor you hear coming out of us today is primarily our way of coping with our lives as they are and as they have been. Sometimes you just gotta laugh about shit. Thanks for coming to my tech talk. Let's do it. All right. Okay, my darlings. I have the absolute pleasure of sharing space today with five incredible indie horror authors and extraordinary mental health advocates. We have Lucas Milliron, Alicia McAdoo, Gerhard G. Oh, Alicia, I'm so sorry. All this time I've been saying it wrong in my head. Everybody does. (laughs) My last name is Echeverria. You should hear the amazing attempts that we get on that one. So, mad empathy. <laughs> Alicia McAdoo. I did it right. Gerhard Jason Guy. Gerhard. Yeah! I'm just, I'm fucking up everybody's names. Gerhard. Gerhard Jason Guy. You and I are like super good friends and all this time you never told me. You, know, you never told me. You were like, uh, Marion. It's just... Unless it's like this, it's just just too hard. It's just too hard. Y'all are killing me here. Jesus. All right. 
Lucas Milliron, Alicia McAdoo, Gerhard Jason Geis. Still Gerhard. <laughs> hey, you got my last name right. You stop it. <laughs> you you are who I whoever I say you are at this point. <laughs> beautiful Natasha Sinclair. And Lord bless her, her camera is giving her fits right now. So she's doing, Hi. she's here, she's here. And R.E. Shambrook. Thank you so much for doing this with me today, my friends. Um, I did record an intro to this episode before we all got together here. I shared with the audience my own diagnosis of major depressive disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, and PTSD. So I would love to take a minute now for you all to briefly introduce yourselves as well. If you could give a little wave for our YouTube fans when I call you out, that would be awesome. Uh, while Zoom shows us right now all of our names, it does not process over with the YouTube video. So just wave so they have an idea of who you are. Um, tell us a little about yourself and your work within the horror industry. And if you feel comfortable sharing it, it would be very helpful for us to know your mental health diagnoses as well. So Lucas Milliron, you want to kick this thing off for us? Sure. Uh, my name is Lucas Milliron. Most people are aware of me from Cocksucker, uh, my yes, aptly named Florida Man Horror. Uh, that's what I'm most known for. I also have several other books, um, including Lost Words in a Dream, My Cosmic Horror Story, Timmy Less, A Story of Repressed Memories, and uh, several others. Uh, Godless knows me very well for Skin Deep. Yes. Now, as far as my diagnoses, I am a dyslexic. I am uh, someone who suffers both depression, anxiety, um, PTSD through childhood trauma and lots of repressed memories. Um, for me, it's really hard to recall some of my childhood from the age of 12 and younger, um, just due to a lot of um, abuse through my uh, biological father and some other family funsies. Yeah, gotta love those adverse childhood events, don't we? Super fun. Well, thank you, friends. Mm -hmm. Alicia, my beautiful, beautiful Alicia McAdoo. Tell us about yourself, darling. Well, I have 24 paperbacks available on Amazon. And I've got like 12 on Godless. I was diagnosed with fibromyalgia. And the more, the less I can move, the more depressed and anxiety I get, and they call it uh, admissible <laughs> depression. So, yeah, but that's me. <laughs> and yeah. then I've got a little bit of probably some PTSD from some pretty shitty situations from my childhood and whatnot. Well, thank you so much, friend. Gerhard. I'm just so, gonna. I'm gonna keep saying your name wrong just to mess with you. Correction: <laughs> She doesn't remember how to say it. <laughs> Go ahead, friend. I'm sorry. Yeah, and I'll just I'll just keep remembering that you're doing it because you don't care. 
Sure, Jan. <laughs> just, just think like Care Bear. Like, Care Bear. Yeah, like Care Bear and then Care Heart. Oh, yeah, I can do that. Yes, it's easy. Uh, kind of. <laughs> well, tell us about yourself, my friends. Okay. So I'm uh, author and editor. Um, I've edited way more than I've written. Um, I've edited lots of erotica um, and edited and written that as well. Um, and I've been editing and writing uh, full time for about four years. Um, I have type one bipolar and uh, PTSD from childhood stuff. Um, and I had a major um, episode, a manic episode, a hypermanic episode in 2017. Um, and before that, I was working in social work. So uh, uh, I worked in a group home for adults with uh, developmental disabilities, I worked in groups homes with uh, youth with uh, developmental disabilities and alcohol and uh, drug abuse. Um, I worked in uh, shelter um, and then I had a uh, manic attack that lasted uh, five weeks. And uh, after that, I wasn't able to go back to work in that field anymore. Yeah. So then I moved on to this. Yeah. It's very, very challenging when you're used to working on one side of the desk and you end up on the other, <laughs> which is a very yeah. fascinating experience to have. Um, mm -hmm. And in the long run, I think makes you a much more empathetic and compassionate uh, healthcare provider in the long run. Thank you, friend, for sharing all of that with us. Natasha. Tell us about yourself, gorgeous. Um, so I'm an independent writer and a freelance editor. So I edit under Word Refinery um, and I independently publish and have got lots of short stories and a plethora of anthologies. Um, only really over the last two years that's happened. But yeah, that's been lots of fun. Um, I was diagnosed with major depressive disorder when about 20 years ago now. Yeah, I was quite like between 18 and 20. Um, although I had suffered from depression my whole childhood, as long as I can remember. Um, but I wasn't able to deal with it until I was able to deal with it on my own because, well, you know how these things go with families and stuff. Yeah. Uh, and I've also gone through uh, PND and PTSD as well because of traumatic um my kids were in neonatal intensive care when they were born and stuff like that so, oh uh, yes that, that brought a lot a lot of stuff with that too <laughs> absolutely you know one of the most fascinating things about trauma is how subjective it is um and how differently we all experience certain yeah. things so it's it's just oh hearing everybody's stories and background, it just really highlights 
how different we all are and yet how much these shared experiences allow us to relate to one another. <laughs> so thank you, friend. R.E. Shambrook. Hello, my dude. Hello. Tell us about yourself. Um, I have one book on Godless. It's a collection of four stories. It's short, sweet, not so sweet, but <clears throat> that's that's it. Um, I have a lot in the works. I, I started a long time ago and just never followed through with it. More about that later. Um, so I have anxiety and depression. My psychiatrist is trying to figure out if I'm bipolar or not. I have uh, OCD issues and PTSD from a wonderful stepdad and a first marriage. It happens. Yeah. I've had two failed marriages, so I understand. Well, I've, I've had two, but the first one was bad. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Um, you know, one of the things I do, I, I, I've become very, very interested in trauma and how it rewires our brains and the long-term challenges that it creates throughout life. And it really all comes down to that thing that we call ACEs, which is those adverse childhood events. And then it's like a domino effect. After that, like one thing leads to another and like one event makes you so much more likely to experience so many more events. It's almost, it's almost bizarre to me how much more likely we are to experience more traumas after experiencing a single event. So it's, it's fascinating. And look at us all. We're all depressed. <laughs> Welcome to the sad bitch club guys. <laughs> it's, it's cause I thought uh, Christina was going to be here. <laughs> You'd probably be better off with Christina at this point. I myself am just mildly hypomanic. So <laughs> like all the time, that's my baseline. This is it. Yeah. Yay, Cymbalta. So guys, what I am most interested in knowing first is what was your first experience with horror fiction most interesting to me is how old you are and what it was and then what about it at that point in time kind of sucked you into the genre I'm not going to call on you like we're in a classroom so if anybody you can all just go whenever moderate yourselves (laughs) so tell me about it first horror fiction experience how old were you and what about it really drew you in um I'll go first yeah yeah so for me, uh, my first favorite horror movie was Creature from the Black Lagoon. A classic. I was around five years old. And the only reason I know that is because I continued to be my favorite all the way into adulthood. I mean, my parents raised us on the black and white horror first mm-hmm. because they're like, oh, look, there's the zipper. So it's not that scary because you can see the <laughs> zipper. 
<laughs> it's and obviously then, not real. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And then because my dad read the Bible backwards and forwards, every Easter, as a family tradition for Easter, we always watch scary movies. So my favorite Easter movie to this day is Army of Darkness. <gasps> Just, I mean, come on. It's about as gory as the Passion of the Christ. It is! <laughs> with 100% more Bruce Campbell. Hell yeah! Um, and it's, I mean, horror has always been it for me. It started with Creature from the Black Lagoon. And then as a kid, um, I really fell in love with, what was it? Um monster squad that was a big oh, one growing up yeah that's I mean, still was... a movie that i recommend to parents oh, who are yeah. like my kids showing a sign that they're interested in like horror and scary stuff what should what's the best movie to start them with and i always monster squad because it's so good <laughs> well and it's a weird movie because it's not quite young adult it's not quite adult so it's in that weird middle ground because yes. it's just borderline scary enough. So, and that's what I love about it. Absolutely. Absolutely. But oh. it started young. Oh, yeah. I was eight years old when I first saw Night of the Living Dead. And mm -hmm. before all that, I had been afraid of everything. Everything. I remember my dad uh, rented Raiders of, no, uh, Indiana Jones, the Temple of Doom, and the scene where the thuggy priest takes the guy's heart out. I literally started screaming, got up and ran out of the room and like went and hid in a closet. Like mm -hmm. I was an overly sensitive kid. And then I saw Night of the Living Dead and something inside of my head just like, um, maybe broke. <laughs> <laughs> And then when I was nine, Exorcist 3 came out and the commercials made me think I was possessed by the devil. But that's another story. Well, for <laughs> me, it wasn't even just movies. It was reading. Because my parents were very selective as the movies we could watch growing up. Um, no sex. All the violence we wanted, but no sex. I mean, the tits, yes. That's interesting. Nudity, nudity was okay. But sex, not so much. I wasn't allowed to watch The Simpsons, but my dad rented Amityville Horror for us. That's and, weird. He, That's and he's an Episcopal priest. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> I wasn't, when I was a kid, I wasn't allowed to watch or read anything. Really? So, well, that leads me into this question. Then, like, how did you get into horror fiction? What was your first experience? How old were you? Uh, well, I, I read... I was living at my dad's for about, I lived there for about three months. And uh, I read Pet Cemetery. Pet so Cemetery. That was, that was my first horror. And uh, like that, I read that like a dozen times. And uh, like that was just like, it blew me away. And it wasn't just like the content like the story but it was the language how old were you again uh 12 probably 12 maybe maybe 11 11 or 12 i know i was probably 11 um, I, pet cemetery is still one of those books that many adults will put on their list as like top five enough. scariest mm -hmm. books that they ever read either that or they just didn't finish it <laughs> it's like yeah. what are the other because it's it's I don't so think heavy that, for people. I don't think that as a kid, a, a ch another child dying affects you as much mm -hmm. as it does, like true as an adult or a parent. Yes, 
True. Totally different perspective. Yeah. I was uh, the same age when I discovered the Green Mile. Oh. It was the Green Mile and the girl who loved Tom Gordon. So I'm right there with you with Stephen King. Um, I have been reading already, though, um, John Wyndham mm-hmm. and uh, Ray Bradbury. Like, I love Ray Bradbury. And he was, oh, yeah. he was, I guess, maybe my, my first introduction to horror. Because his his endings are pretty dark. Pretty dark. Oh uh, yeah. Something wicked this way comes. That's an amazing book. Oh yeah. And uh, I hadn't read anything like that, but I'd read like a lot of his short stories. And uh, like I wasn't allowed to watch um, like this Inspector Gadget. Yeah. <laughs> With a smurf, right? <laughs> I fucking um, like hated Do- the smurfs. Do- Doctor Claw from Inspector Gadget. Yes! You can watch, watch that, right? Yes. But uh, there were some shows that got slid under the carpet because my mom just didn't know what they were. Mm-hmm. And so, like, my favorite show was uh, the Ray Bradbury Theater. Yeah, man. And if she ever sat down and watched an episode, I would have never been able to watch it. My sister and I used to watch Twilight Zone and uh, Dark Shadows on the Sci-Fi Channel all summer. Yeah, we only we only had three channels, and we had the rabbit ears, and you'd have to like yeah. them and everything. So we didn't we didn't get that. Um, well, that's a great start. That's a great place to start with a love for horror. What about you other guys? How did you, how did you fall into the horror net? I was pretty much the same in terms of horror movies when I was a kid. Like my parents kind of tried to shield us from everything, but I used to say with my gran a lot and she was, she just, we just sat and had horror movies Saturday night. So it was like Nightmare on Elm Street poltergeist um omen loads of religious horror yes Uh, lots of religious horror which was quite fun when you're going to catholic school and me uh, too (laughs) i also went to catholic school and i also had a morbid grandma (laughs) they're the best (laughs) yes i think that's where i genetically got my love of it too go on go on i'm living for this Uh, yeah so that's what started it in terms of movies and then obviously literature wise it would have just been reaching for the horror books when you had the book club coming to school and you could buy a book and it would always be ghost stories and goosebumps and stuff like that first but I went heavier quite quickly (laughs) who all here had a childhood obsession with Alvin Schwartz and the scary stories to tell in the dark yeah raise those damn hands i know y'all read these books <laughs> i i still haven't read them it, it's, it's on my list like totally but oh i wish God. i would have i wish i would have read them as a kid because i've heard like so much you could oh. read them now as an adult and you will still love them you no, will I know. Still they're, still, love them. <laughs> they're still on my list oh my list so is so good. big Oh, don't tell me about it. My problem was I was already reading the uh, books of blood. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone was reading Goosebumps and I was reading Clive Barker. (laughs) 
Excellent. Lucas was <laughs> Lucas was a spicy nine-year-old. <laughs> like I said, my parents filtered movies, but they were just happy I was reading. Yeah. I mean, so it's like one day I'm reading Bunny Kula, and then the next day, ooh, what's Damnation Game? Yeah. <laughs> I fucking hated that damn rabbit. I hated that book so much. I don't know why. I was like, this sucks. I sorry, sorry steak. to people who love Vanicula, but uh, I just love the steak. Oh they beat a rabbit with a piece of meat. Just <laughs> I freaking hated it. Alicia, Ari, Alicia, Ale- oh my god, <laughs> it's because all of these months in my mind, that's how I've been saying it. I'm just gonna be like, McAdoo, what's up? <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about it, guys. I started writing uh, when I was about four or five. It was a school assignment, and the teacher flunked me and said it was too dark, and I needed to rewrite it. So I rewrote it, but I kept what I originally had written, and I've just been, like, ever since, like, my favorite uh, books were the John Saul books. And I, my favorite movie was the Beetlejuice. So yes. the Beetlejuice and everything, I just stick with the horror. Now, this last year, I branched off to children's, uh, well, young adult comedy. I found that I can do both, but I have to have something horror in the right background because I can't just write the <laughs> young adult. <laughs> it's a piece of your soul. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Beetlejuice was a movie my sister and I, we could probably do every single line. We watched it so many times. We loved that movie. Loved it. I've pretty much bought it about six times now because I've either lost copies or I finally broke down and bought it on digital so I don't have to worry about it anymore. (laughs) So you don't keep watching every copy to death. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> totally understand. <laughs> Ari, tell us about how you got into horror. Oh, I had to have been about second grade. Don't know how old I was in second grade. That's it was second grade. Um, <laughs> me and my best friend would go to the library in school and they had these orange back books and they were all the classic black and white uh universal uh horror and so we would we were he would get one and i would get one and we would swap them and and so we could we could read all of them and there wasn't much reading it was more picture books but it it started that um but i could not take them home my uh my my dad stepdad whatever he was a uh, bible thumper I was not allowed to, um, yeah, no, no, no. I was, I was in second grade when Beetlejuice came out and I was not allowed to watch it. It was too gory. Yeah. You and I must be around the same age yeah. then. Cause I think I, I was around eight years old. Yeah. Yeah. We didn't, I didn't get to see that one probably till I was like 12 or 13, I think was the first time that we saw that I love to see Back to the Future. <laughs> <gasps> wow. Oh, I, isn't it so funny that so many of the parents here desperately tried 
to keep you away from those things they were afraid would corrupt your mind. And yet you found them anyway, because you were just drawn to them. We, we love it. I, it's just part of who we are. Horror is definitely uh, not for everybody. One thing it sounds like is that there's also a shared thing that they tried to protect our eyes and our ears, but not like maybe our physical bodies, maybe our- Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Like there's there's, uh, fucked up priorities. Yeah, it's very morality focused, isn't it? Yeah. Very focused on the morality but you're right about the protection of other aspects when it comes to horror kind of jumping off of that since we are talking about how you know childhood may have been far more dangerous than you know would be expected do you feel that horror has provided you an outlet for therapeutic catharsis or trauma processing and in what ways do you find that to be true I mean I do I write as therapy and whatever I've gone through or whatever I'm feeling or whatever demon I want to put to rest I create a character and I play it out to that character and that's how I'm able to cope would you yeah. say that most of your books are very personal experiences in that way? Oh, yes. There's a piece of my soul in each story. <laughs> now, I love that you take you take fairy tale stories like you did the whole Rumpelstiltskin series. Oh, yeah. Now, I'm, inter- my favorite. <laughs> I'm interested in knowing, Alicia, were you were you a big fan of grim fairy tales when you were growing up and basically of like fairy tales in general? Did you find them to be an emotional outlet as a child? Not really, no. Um, I actually didn't even read the grim fairy tales until I was in college. <laughs> but I mean, I liked The Little Mermaid growing up. That was like my favorite of all times. Yes. And I read a book. I can't remember who it was by or uh, the title. But they had uh, their own take on a fairy tale. And I just thought that was cool as shit. So I was like, I can do that. And I liked, I've always liked the story of Rumpelstiltskin because it is just very dark, regardless of which version it is. I'm working on a new uh, dark fairy tale, The Beauty and the Beast. I loved Beauty and the Beast growing up. My sister and I, that was a VHS tape that we did play to death. (laughs) It literally (laughs) fell apart because we watched it so many times. And my mom was a big fan of the live action TV show with Ron Perlman. So Uh, I remember seeing that that too. And it was very like soap (laughs) (laughs) opera. What about you other guys? What have you, have you found horror to be a way of kind of processing stuff? I'm, I'm a very cathartic writer. Every story that I have ever written has at least one piece of truth in my life. Um, I mean, the first book I ever wrote was Tim E. Lest. And it wasn't the first book I released because it went through several edits because of the structure of the book is nonlinear. 
So it took me about three extra years of editing before the book actually came out. Wow. Um, but the second book I ended up releasing, The Chattering, was about repressed memories. Um, again, something that I have a lot of experience with growing up. And there's a scene in the story becoming where Cody is standing in the shower and he's contemplating suicide. That was verbatim taken from a short that I had written when I was around middle school age. I don't remember what age I was. Um, wow. I was heavily bullied as a kid because I was, um, I mean, in the school I was at was called uh, Barton Elementary and it's in a very poor area of Lake Worth. I mean, I grew up in the ABC streets. Uh, disclosure, my mom's Mexican. Uh, my biological father is very Caucasian. So I mostly grew up with my mom, you know, she was a migrant worker and we grew up in very poor areas. Yeah. And I was very picked on because I was the only kid who listened to heavy metal. I was the only oh. kid who liked rock and roll. I was oh the only kid who liked horror stories. And you were the weird a, goth kid. <laughs> I wouldn't even say goth because I didn't know what that was at the time. I was too busy listening to Metallica and Slayer. So I, you know, I didn't have anyone that I could call a friend. Yeah. And there was a point where I contemplated, well, what would suicide be like? And I wrote it and I just didn't like the ending. And because I didn't like the ending, that's pretty much why I'm still here. And that wow. ended up in becoming. So, I mean, even Cocksucker has things that are real life happened to me and some of it's trauma, some of it's funny but it's how I process. I mean, Skin Deep was, it's literally a story about my worst fear. And my worst fear is becoming my dad, becoming my biological father. Yeah. And anyone who has read that story knows that that's basically, you know, that's what happens. And I literally took a lot of my own personal traumas, a lot of the actual abuse that happened to me is in that story. And I don't want to say which is real and which is fiction because I still want people to enjoy that book and that story. Yeah. But not everything you read in my stuff is totally fiction. And yeah. it is, it's how I deal with things. So I am very, very much a cathartic writer. What about you other guys? My, uh, my writing is like exactly the same as what you're talking about Lucas like it's it's a mixed mash of fiction and non-fiction and it's saved my life like um more times than I count from for the last 25 years at least um just writing like poetry and stuff like that like all of my books there the characters are are me in some way or, or another and uh, I was just talking about this with uh, uh, Marion. My uh, one phobia, uh, sinophobia, is about uh, a dog that gets, uh, well, I'm not going to give out. Unalived. Unalived. <laughs> it's about uh, animal abuse, essentially. And uh, my dad was, uh, my dad abused animals. And uh, 
the this is the gone through a few uh, drafts uh, since I brought it to this form. It addresses um, like my fears of following and becoming like him. And it addresses some of my uh, fantasies that I've had, revenge fantasies. And it's given me a lot of uh, closure and it brought a lot of healing. And I used to be like terrified of dogs. I used to have panic attacks around them because of uh, what I've what I've seen and um, what I've experienced with my dad and dogs, and uh, writing about writing about this has been part of a process that has ended up with me having a dog and building a relationship with the dog. And yeah, I I hope it's okay for me to mention this, and if not, you know, I'll take care of it in post. But Gerhard actually gave me an opportunity to read work that he created during a manic phase and yeah yeah, and it was one of the most interesting things I have ever read especially from the perspective of someone who has worked as a mental health professional um it was just so fascinating to see the glorious creativity and talent that comes through and the brilliant thinking and the just amazing thought processes and yet they're all clouded over by grandiose delusion or paranoia or and it's just absolutely beautiful and fascinating I wish he would publish it (laughs) because I think a lot of people would it would really resonate with people Uh, Bipolar is far more prevalent than I think people understand. There are a lot of people who live with bipolar every day, and you might know a lot of people who are diagnosed bipolar, and you wouldn't know it because they they do what they need to do to take care of themselves and maintain stability. But I just thought it was one of the best things I've ever read, read, simply because of its, its brutal honesty, but also the beauty that was in it. So... Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. It's hard to get into. It is. It's it hard is. It's hard to get into. And like I, I get into a frame of mind where I'm ready to do it. And I'll get like a little tiny chunk out of it. And then it's just like a door closes and it's hard to, it's hard to get into it. Well, I'm sure because it also was a highly stressful time in your life. Like you, you want to honor the experience, but at the same time, you don't want to relive the experience. And when you're working on a narrative, it's hard not to put yourself back in that place. So that also is incredibly understandable. You know, it would be one of, I think one of the most challenging things you would ever have to do is actually formalize that and put it out there to the world i think that one of the hardest things is that i've read a fair amount of stuff from other people who uh who are bipolar Mm -hmm. and they're writing about their their attacks 
it's not it's not real because um they've lost the they're no longer delusional yeah there's a a lack of it misses that feeling of genuine i can see i can remember in a certain way and it's different from what i've written down and it's written from what other people say yeah so you can't you can't say this is what you were thinking in a situation um, anymore. Yeah, absolutely. Natasha, R E. Yes. Hi. Hi. So, what is your relationship with horror in this way? Have you found it to be an outlet for therapeutic uh, processing? Yes, absolutely. I think I have a bit of a mixture of both where um, you put little snippets and pieces of yourself that you want to exercise, I suppose, through fiction or through a character or a situation that's happened and you'll play out and fictionalise it. That can be very cathartic. Um, On the other side, you can create something that's the total opposite of the dark place you're at and take it to another dark place absolutely and just true. give yourself absolute escapism and yeah. I think that's what horror is for a lot of people as well it's it's escapism from their own darkness absolutely but yeah. absolutely but I've done that as well like one of one of the books I published a couple of years ago was a trio of short stories and they were all suicide stories um they were called it was just a life of suicide and I took one character and they died by suicide at three different times within a life sounds a bit strange to do um but a lot a lot of myself went into that that was very cathartic and very therapeutic because it was thought processes that I had gone through myself and to write through that um it, it was a good journey. It was a very therapeutic journey. Um, and I debated about publishing it. Um, but in the end, I did because the feedback of others that I allowed to read it was that they also found it quite cathartic to read. And I think that's a part of mental health that's very much ill mental health that's very much glossed over when someone is suicidal. Oh my God, yes. Uh, people... If someone dies by suicide, people focus on the survivors around that. And I'm not saying, of course, that's extremely traumatic for anyone close to that person around it. Um, But I think sometimes they forget about that the person that actually went through that psychological change and that process of, nope, this is it, it's over. And how much it actually takes to get to that point Oh my God. Yes. Oh my God. Absolutely. When, when, um, whenever I have worked with family who has been left behind, one of the things that we try to focus on is, you know, they didn't, they didn't do this to hurt you. This was not personal. You have to think, and a lot of people will go to the, oh, well, they just gave up. Or some people will like lean into the only cowardly people do this. Do you imagine how much courage it actually takes yeah. to walk into that place, to feel that hopeless and that helpless, the amount of pain that someone feels, how isolated 
they must feel. So there's an intensity of emotion there that I think people try to avoid because it's very uncomfortable. It's very uncomfortable to consider. The other thing that I always tell people, especially now when I'm like teaching de-escalation and safe crisis management, that kind of thing, uh, I've, you can't tell me that everybody in this world has not had at least that one time experience where they were like, you know what, I, I just wish I wouldn't wake up tomorrow. That, that is a universal experience, whether you have a mental health diagnosis or not. You can't tell me that there haven't been a, at least a couple times in your life where you were like, God damn it, I wish this was just over. <laughs> or why am I even fucking here? <laughs> and anybody who tells you they've never had those thoughts, they're full of shit. Maybe that's a hot take on my part but I don't, I don't know I'm pretty sure I'm I'm on the money <laughs> real quick and then I'm gonna bother Ari but Natasha what did you say that collection is called again a life of suicide a life of suicides and it's just um a trio of short stories yep is it available through Amazon it, it is on Amazon uh-huh it All is right. Published two, I think that was two or three years ago when I published that. I am very interested um, in that, so I am putting that on my list. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> RE. Hold on, I'm writing. I'm writing that down. Yeah, <laughs> I do that. I every episode, I'm like constantly taking notes. I'm like, I need to read this, and I need to put this on my TBR, and now I have to find this. Like, I'm ever going to have a chance to to read everything. <laughs> audiobooks so, don't help either I, I know getting into audiobooks I'll be able to read extra because while I'm doing all this other stuff but no no <laughs> it, the TBR grows way faster than that too yeah. even if you speed up even if you speed it up oh so good <laughs> I know I know Ari what is your relationship with horror as far as therapeutic processing and all that good stuff goes um Technically, I started writing in high school, and that was mostly poetry, a few short stories, but I was also that kid that was bullied. Um, my dad was in the Air Force. We went to a new school every year, and uh, so I, I never learned to make friends because I wasn't going to keep them, so I always was just the kid by myself so I always got picked on so I was also really into death metal so I started writing <laughs> poetry or lyrics um and I was killing off my classmates <laughs> <laughs> hey better you do it on paper than in real life um yeah exactly. <laughs> and uh um and this is this is this is pre-columbine you know I mean this wasn't a thing yet as much as it is now yeah. but yeah most of most of that poetry was um or song lyrics were uh trying to get rid of all the people that uh bullied me and then I'd stop writing when I for a while and then when me and my first wife got together uh, that was a horrible experience um so in, in, in a story that will be coming out 
sometime. There's a lot of that in there where um, it's our relationship. Yeah. You know, it, it was it was a way to get it out and get over it before it was even over. Yeah. Do you do you all feel like it's almost like a form of creative writing blended with journaling at times finding a way and I think somebody had mentioned it was like finding a way to take these experiences and kind of put them in a a safe space where you can kind of set them aside and step back and look at them and process them from a, 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 a safe distance I can see that yeah now a lot of, we all got to know each other because of dark fiction, subversive, transgressive, splatterpunk, bizarro. So we all enjoy the darker end of horror. Horror is dark and we are all hanging out in like the darkest corner together, like a bunch of but That's where they got the cookies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Come to the dark side. We have cookies. Yes, I know. Isn't that funny? Because the people in the darkest corner are like the coolest, nicest people <laughs> in the have whole the best community. Candy. I know, right? So one of my one of the things that I always think about is how these books, especially like Splatterpunk and Bizarro, the violence is so out there. It's so wild. It's so bizonkers. Like cocksucker i mean lucas we can read that book are we going to feel scared in the in the common sense of the word scared no because there's that there's that level we're gonna feel that excitement and that adrenaline and that anticipation and that disturbed and that like grossed out feeling but there's a level of surrealism to it that creates a psychological safety net and I don't know if you guys would agree with me on this but I feel like the more violent the more gruesome the more out there and bizarre these things are the safer they feel because in our hearts and minds we know that we would I'm never going to be uh attacked by curious old Bob like I don't live in Florida (laughs) I might get uh, thwomped, I might get swamped on the head by a frozen mm-hmm. iguana, but I'm not gonna get attacked by curious old Bob. Sure, what's up? <laughs> I have I, I owe you an apology. So I read uh, Cocksucker. Mm-hmm. Uh, before I well I didn't read it. <laughs> uh, but I, I purchased it um, before I was ready for it. Mm-hmm. Um, before I'd read any extreme horror. Uh, oh the my God. Most, <laughs> the most ex- I'd read the entire uh, Richard Lehman library. Okay. But that was, that was little different. the most extreme thing that I knew existed. <laughs> I thought that the rooster and the, was interesting and I thought that the book's description was interesting. <laughs> and uh, oh, that first sentence. That first I sentence. The, I read the first uh, two paragraphs and uh, my Amazon review isn't very kind. Oh, it's okay. And I asked for my money back. You're all right. 
I take no offense. I mean, but I, I really did like skin deep. Well, thank you. No, with, <laughs> so I have my own subset of weird, gross fiction. Um, I call it my Florida man horror. Like anybody who's so read good. Welcome, anybody who's read Welcome to the Splatter Club yet, Club yet has uh, Volume Two knows Meth Gator. Meth Gator. And <laughs> the whole point to when I write something that gross and extreme, there's always a happy ending. And I do that intentionally. I mean, Cocksucker, despite being as gross as it is, there is a happy ending. I mean, my favorite line isn't any of the gross stuff. And I don't want to spoil it too much, but it's Winston's last line before he saves Freddy. And anybody Whoa. who remembers the scene, it's that is my favorite line because it is the total antithesis of what I'm trying to get at. Yes, it is gross. It is weird. It is disgusting. It is... But welcome to Florida. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's one. Of, it's one of my favorite books, and it's one of my all-time favorite reviews that I've done since starting TikTok. One but of my Ger favorite reviews you've done. <laughs> I'm biased, Gerhard, but Gerhard and I were kind of like, I, I, I loved it. I loved it. But that was the first time in a review where I was like, you can read this book if you want, but don't blame me. Do not put that on me. I will take no responsibility for you reading this. <laughs> but no, and I mean, and it's intentional. All of it, it's so way good. over the top. <laughs> and so I good. want certain aspects of my splatterpunk to show that. But, that when it is but if, that the, if, mm -hmm. if the person who wrote that review read what I'm writing now, mm -hmm. read like... He wouldn't have made it through. <laughs> well, I don't think, I don't know that he would have made it through. No, but that's kind of it. It's, you know, it's not for everybody. And that's the thing when you write extreme horror is you can appreciate that not everybody's ready yet. Like, had I read Jack Ketchum's The Girl Next Door in high school or younger, I would have gotten out of horror because that is an intense book. Oh my God, yeah. Very much so. Oh my I gosh. Mean, Everybody finds their fiction at the right time. And it's the same thing with people who appreciate stuff like Lovecraft. I mean, we appreciate that it is so transgressive from the time that it came out, but we also appreciate that he was a racist prick, even yeah. for the time. Yeah. But you have to hit it at just the right time in your life, because if you read that now as an adult, realizing that it was steeped in racism you're not going to enjoy it as much. You have to go in with those innocent eyes. And if you've experienced some of the stuff that we've all experienced, sometimes you can't get into these things unless you've kind of found a good safe space in yourself. Not to say that you need a safe space around you, but you need to be ready in your own person before you can get into any of this. So I don't get turned off by one-star reviews. I don't get turned off when people tell me it's not for them because let's face it, your mom's menstrual blood on your foreskin while your sister's sucking your dick isn't for everybody. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I think that's something that universally can be enjoyed by anyone. I mean, unless you're going to make a vampire tea. <laughs> well, I, I grew to love uh, Matt Shaw's uh, Sick, Sicker, and Sickest. Oh, so my God, those yeah. Those are fun. Well, it was like, um, everybody asked me about Ed Lee, Ed Lee. And I'm like, well, I intentionally avoided Ed Lee while writing Cocksucker because I didn't want that to go into the book. So Ed yeah. Lee didn't ever come into my existence until afterwards. <laughs> so 
do you very do pervasive you, oh my god yeah well mm. the drithyphilus yeah the 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 phlegm eater the family that one yeah oh my god yeah the pig oh my god the pig um even the pig was appalled yeah <laughs> do you do so i why do you think we all ended up in this dark corner i think that it's interesting that people who people like us who will straight up be very honest and be like look life has not been easy i have post-traumatic stress disorder i think people automatically assume that there is a mental weakness there uh, as far as how much we can handle not intelligence or anything like that but how how sensitive we might be to things that are extreme in nature what really i have found is that most of our little dark corner is full of people who will straight up be like yeah i've i've seen some shit and i've lived through some hell and to me mm-hmm. these books are like it's for me, it's always been about communication. <laughs> like, it's one thing to tell someone that you were physically abused as a child. It's one thing to say that your father was an alcoholic, that you grew up homeless, that, you know, I mean, in my case, I'm the first person in my family to firstly graduate high school. Like, my mom didn't graduate high school, she was in the fields picking fruits and vegetables. My yeah. biological father didn't finish high, didn't finish middle school because. He was already an alcoholic. I mean, so when you come from something, it's hard to talk about it as conversational. You know, these aren't things that you just talk to on a first date. These are things that, you know, you have to stew and hold into yourself for a very long time, at least for me. And I couldn't communicate this stuff until I discovered writing. And then once I discovered writing, that was when I realized I can share these experiences in a safer way than just telling you, oh, yeah, by the way, my dad used to beat the shit out of me when I was five years old. Yeah, how was your day? You know, it's easier to convey that. Um, In my story, the more gruesome they are and the more gore they are, that's me working through something that had happened. And I've never been able to say, okay, this is what happened. I've always had to hide it in a story and then I feel better. I feel safer, yeah. you know? You so the t- more extreme my scenes get, that means, you know, I'm, I'm working through something. And the only way I can get past it and put that demon to rest is put it in a story, torture the shit out of somebody. <laughs> I actually have a question for the group because this is the first time I've been presented with a, an audience of other people who have gone through similar things. Do you guys read your own work and do you guys actually let your family read it? I do not let my family read mine. Uh, my oh. mom is allowed to read my young adult comedies, but nobody else in my family is allowed to read any of my extreme horror. And I read as i write do you do you keep it from them because you're afraid of what their perception will be of it um it's a little bit like they probably don't realize you know they they probably didn't realize that and that time in my life was dark and 
I don't want them to, I don't want it messing with their head. You know, yeah. I, I don't want that on their conscience. Or them projecting some level of guilt onto themselves, thinking that they yeah. are misinterpreting it somehow to put and on I, themselves. And I do, I write darker stuff and it's just like Lucas has said, it's not for everybody. And I don't want somebody who's in a fragile mindset maybe to come across it and be like, oh my God, such sugars. Because I do, I write darker shit. <laughs> I know a lot of people get turned off when I will use like content warnings or trigger warnings with my reviews because the concept is, well, horror is meant to be horrifying. If you're going to read a horror book, you should expect that it's not going to be comfortable and it's going to be gross and it's going to be awful. But I think sometimes, especially in the subversive transgressive horror, there's stuff that pops up that you never expected. Like it'll come out of nowhere and you're like, holy shit. And so I think it's important because everybody has certain levels of tolerance. So you're right on the money. Absolutely. You might have somebody in your life who's just not ready to see that. <laughs> what about you other guy? I did. I did something terrible. Don't tease. I Tell this, us. I had, book, <laughs> I had this book in 2012 called Emily and the Others, and it was a paperback of shorts. And there were stories in there that were, were, uh, were, were like all of most of my stuff that's blended. Um, and uh, some of them were a little more close to home than some of the stuff that I've put out now. And uh, like, if you were just reading it, you wouldn't know. And so, we, uh, I don't speak to my dad, but we, uh, we made a point to drive out like two and a half hours or whatever to where he's living and uh, give him a copy of uh, the book. <gasps> Did you ever hear from him again? <laughs> uh, I don't remember if we spoke since then. Yeah, I think we have. But it never came up. I recently discovered uh, Matthew Cash, who I don't know if you guys have read any of his stuff, but he writes from very, very personal places. And all of his work has uh, had a deep impact on me. But one that he recently did, The, the Glut, Holy crap. <laughs> I've never resonated with a book so deeply before from the perspective of addiction um, and especially from the perspective of the main character who is an emotional eater and develops a food addiction because I have lived that life and I have been in that space. And I here I was reading this completely bazonkers, bizarro novel, and I was feeling so many deep emotions and having to do so much internal processing that I never expected to have to do. Like this book had me in tears at one point because I related to it so deeply. And yet it was this crazy book about this giant cosmic entity that just like eats everything. <laughs> it was absolutely, I, I, I just, 
have you guys found books like that that just like resonated so so deeply with you because I've had more emotional experiences with extreme horror or splatterpunk and bizarro than I have with any mainstream horror books and I find that fascinating not with a book but with a few movies um I can't watch butterfly effect it's not even really horror, but I can't watch it because I've I've lived through something similar to that or that experience with all the things missing. And it it's one of those movies that I watch it and I have and it has an effect on me. Yeah. So not in fiction, which is why I've always felt safe with fiction. I mean, words are in your head, but that particular movie, I, oof, no. Um, that one and... Uh, what was the Jim Carrey one? Spotless Mind. That one. Oh, I, yeah. Sunshine. Uh, sunshine of a spotless. Eternal mind. sunshine of the spotless eternal, mind. Yeah. That, to me, is the worst possible situation because I wonder what would be different if I could remember what happened. Yeah. And sometimes I don't want to, and that movie reminds me that there are people who will do that intentionally, and it bothers me. I know not everybody understands it until you live it, but Guillermo del Toro said it best. There are two kinds of scary movies, Tag and Hide and Seek. Everybody knows Tag, Halloween, Freddy, Jason, the jump out and scare you. Uh-huh. Hide and Seek would be like Alien. You don't see the monster, but you know it's there. You can hear it. You can feel it. And when it comes to triggers, it's more cerebral than that. When it comes to triggers, it'll be a smell and then you're there. Oh my God, a, yes. It'll be a sound and then all of a sudden you remember something. And if only I could remember what it was, I could see the zipper in the back and pull it down. But you yeah. can't because you don't have any basis to go off of. Yeah. I mean, it gets quite intense. And I, those, yeah, no, I can't do those movies. What about you other guys? Has anybody else had experiences like this with either books or movies where all of a sudden you were like, whoa, <laughs> why am I feeling so many feelings? And for me, probably not horror this time, but one of the books that stuck with me the first time I read it, and it was very unexpected because of the style of writing, but Paulo Coelho, I'm probably pronouncing his name wrong. Um, but he wrote a short novella called Veronica Decides to Die. And again, it's about someone who goes to take their own life, doesn't. And in case you ever read it, I'm not going to say any more than that. But it's more about the journey when she's met with her own mortality um, oh, wow. and the emotional journey through not succeeding at ending her own life. And something that comes after that, she finds a, a, a strange kind of freedom and a way to live that she hadn't had before. Um, it was just a really, really interesting turn of events in that book. I quite enjoyed that. Another one actually from what, uh, uh, this is actually a horror writer uh, within the indie horror community, Carver Pike. He did a book, um, again, it was really unexpected when I picked it up, uh, Discovering Ivory in a Charcoal Cave, which is a book of poetry, and it's a poetic journey through 
depression and the main character he uses is going through a, a grief journey following the loss of his wife I think oh my god um, it was so unexpected um and as I read it I actually bought that book on Kindle read it like in one sitting and thought I have to buy like six copies minimum so that I've got one to give to everyone you <laughs> said this is <laughs> discovery of charcoal in a dive like discovering ivory in a charcoal cave. Yep, Carver Pike. I've read so much of Carver Pike and I didn't even know that this existed. Yeah, it's totally I've... outside the realm of his other stuff. Um, it's really hard hitting and he's poetic. The poetry is just fantastic. It's just so well done. You're killing me here. My TBR is just getting longer and longer. Thanks, Natasha. That's why you do these. <laughs> <laughs> I need more book threats. It's true. I need to be more book stressed. <laughs> well, you know, guys, mental health has always, always carried a significant societal stigma. And historically, we commonly see horror tropes like the haunted asylum, uh, the lunatic psychiatrist doing experiments on the patients or the escaped mental patient quote unquote going on a killing spree michael myers um how do you feel the representation of mental illness in horror has been evolving over the past decade and do you think that we in the do you have you observed that we in the community seem to be actively trying to change public perceptions regarding mental illness through horror I mean, I, mean I, I personally write asylum stories and mad scientist stories. and Well, they're fun and they're classic. And, <laughs> but I do think that some authors are out there trying to change the image. Me, not so much. Uh, <laughs> I, I tend to write my villains as people or monsters. So, yeah, I'm not really helping to the image much but it's fun to write but here's the thing people are the monsters <laughs> so it's not like you're that far off target because it's absolutely true that's that's where I think our fear comes from is the knowledge that other people are the thing that we should fear the most and that's just the truth that's our reality that's the way it is um and those those things are fun like I love one of the things I'm most fascinated by is Waverly Hills Sanatorium in uh Kentucky <laughs> like I want to go there so bad because it's a big old abandoned haunted asylum to me that like my sets my brain on fire I love that stuff me too I love stuff like that <laughs> like I've always wanted to go to like haunted like asylums and spend the night yeah we'll meet somewhere we gonna do it together <laughs> And I love that stuff, but I feel like when people, when people think of still in 2022, I feel like when they think of mental illness, they still think of like the crazy psycho killer. You know what I mean? And it's, it's, it's so much more than that, but I feel like horror has had a hard time pulling away from it because it's almost easy, right? 
It's you mean that so when people think about it in reality or strictly in fiction? In fiction. Okay. Well, kind of a blend of both. I think there's a lot of stigma. Well, a lot of people think that people who suffer from psychotic disorders are naturally violent. That's not true. Um, I can't remember the stand-up comedian's name off the top of my head. Um, he was a co-writer on the Dave Chappelle show, and he has a stand-up special on net on a Netflix called Three Mics. Um, he suffers from depression, and I'm going to kick myself until I remember the name. But he makes a note of it that he's like, people don't believe me until I show them the receipts of how much time I've spent going to therapy, of how much time I've spent getting medicated, of the types of medication I'm on, with the types of side effects. Why would I take drugs that give me in, like, that make you impotent intentionally if you're that sad? It's people look at depression and because there's no obvious wound or there's no wound that isn't necessarily self-inflicted, people don't always believe it. And at least, I mean, I mean, I agree with that completely. Look what happened to Robin Williams. He oh portrayed God, himself yeah. as the happiest man alive, but he had deep rooted depression. I was in a bad car accident in 2011. And when they were putting me on the gurney to take me to the hospital, they dropped me on the street. And I ended up having permanent nerve damage and it also kicked in the fibromyalgia. So just because I'm smiling, people are all like, oh, well, you must be fine. Because it's an invisible disease. Yeah, say, it exist. <laughs> right? I have, I have rheumatoid arthritis and people can't really see how much pain I have all the time. My sister has interstitial cystitis. She's in agony, but because they can't see it and because you can mask it, people don't believe you. And a lot of it's the same with mental health. So my mother had, um, was complaining about headaches and these went on for months and months and months and months. She went to several doctors, neurologists, endocrinologists, and they all said it was because she was a bored housewife. It wasn't until she went to her optometrist because her glasses weren't working that they found a tumor pressing against her optic nerve the size of a strawberry. People don't understand pain they can't physically see. No. And I understand from their perspective because if someone says, ow, my arm feels like it's falling off. Well, it's still there. So where's the proof? You're fine, go back to work. <laughs> And it's like, if they hadn't done the dilation exam, they wouldn't have noticed a strawberry-sized tumor right behind her sinus. Yeah. And shit like that happens to people all the time when it comes to pain symptoms, when it comes to, you know, feelings of depression. And some of it is societal norms, because yes, there are plenty of people out there who are just shouting for attention. I've had so many friends in high school who were shaking bottles of pills on the self and I'm going to do it this time. I'm going to do it. And you know, they're just, they need that person to talk to, to lean on and not everybody is available for that. And I understand and I sympathize with people who are naysayers, but at the same time, you can't, you have to look. If you don't physically look and empathize with the person, maybe all they needed was that little bit of help. But oh, you don't absolutely. Know 
until after it's said and done, there's nothing you can do. Here's a uh, an interesting number for you guys. Do you know how long it takes for someone to actually get decent mental health care after their first symptoms start to appear? Any thoughts? The rest of their life. <laughs> <laughs> I it can feel that way, even until they get proper, like their first step towards treatment and diagnosis. In the U.S., it's cultural. yeah. In the U.S., yeah. Well, it's 11, cultural. Eleven years. That's I mean devastating. Now, luckily, Mexican, a lot of kids. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. I was gonna say, growing up Mexican, that was yeah. No, here's some beer. Here's some tequila. Here's drink it off. And that, yeah, no. <laughs> Which only <laughs> leads to more thing. problems. <laughs> but if That's it's how you've right, dealt with it. I don't it, have 11 it, years to waste. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Bill's got, you have rent due. You have all this other stuff due. You have to pay for your truck. You have to pay. It's life keeps moving regardless of your own problems. And when you live in impoverished situations, that's all you have is tomorrow. You don't have today because it's gone. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, I think our generation has been trying to change this for uh, our children and the children that are coming after us, because I think we're seeing more and more young people who are getting services at an earlier age, if and when possible, because our child adolescent services are overflowing. We, we have too many children and not enough services to provide them, which in and of itself is a little bit disheartening. But at the same time, I'm happy to see young children getting the help they need that early because I think our generation, Generation X, the, the elder millennials, we didn't have that same level of support when we were growing up. If you did, that's awesome. But I have a feeling we probably all that same experience or you didn't even talk about the fact that you were sad <laughs> I didn't talk about the fact that when I was 11 I wanted to jump out a window because I was afraid I was going to get in trouble <laughs> kids in Cambodia are starting kids right? in Cambodia are starving right? what's wrong with you and the little fat girl wants to jump out a window like <laughs> that's how I felt like I was going to get in trouble for it because it was there was so much stigma behind it I still have problems admitting that I've got depression. Like, I still don't talk about it. I just, I continue to pour my soul into my writing because that's how I, I deal with it. You know, I'm on the medication and yeah, <laughs> I still don't talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. Because you're afraid of what people will, will think. <laughs> absolutely. I mean, how many of us dudes were hit from our parents because we were crying? Yeah. You know, from family members because, oh, you're a dude. Dudes don't show emotions. Dudes don't cry. And how many times were you hit because of it? I'd like to think that we are changing those patterns for our kids. Yes. I sure hope. I always, I always say that I learned to be a good father by uh, not doing everything that my dad did. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's tough. It is. So as an adult and being in basically working and socializing in this genre, what 
What books or films do you feel have had the greatest impact on you from the perspective of how it correlated to your personal mental health experience? I already pointed out the glut. My experience with that book was pretty heavy, regardless of how uh, fantastical it was. It had a, a, It hit me really hard. What... What books or movies have you guys had that kind of experience with? You know, when I when I see characters on TV that are portrayed with bipolar and uh, they're exhibiting symptoms, then that's always hard for me. Um, if it, are you familiar with Shameless? Yeah, yeah. The TV um, show. Yeah. So the mom and daughter, the mom and son are both, well, the mom and one of the sons both have uh, type one bipolar, which is the same as mine. And uh, like, I can really relate to their uh, behavior. And uh, it's just like, when I see how they act when they're having episodes, it's like really, really yeah. this really Resonate. like that um so when i see that or if i see like celebrities or stuff like that um who you see i see who are spiraling and like i i either know for sure or i'm like i just got the sense that they do by their behavior and they're being like um torn apart from by the media I'm usually, my wife gets annoyed because I always go, I think that person has bipolar and she's like, oh, stop it. And then I'll like Google it and it'll be like, yeah, they do. Um, so when I see someone spiraling and then it's like uh, uh, Jim Carrey is out of control and he's, they're making it out like he's intentionally being a jackass, right? but he's having an episode and it's a mental health crisis and they're making a deal of it. Kanye West. Kanye West openly has bipolar disorder and does not maintain compliance with his treatment and frequently has very public, uh, hate to, for lack of a better term, public meltdowns. He's going through one right now. So, and it always, it breaks my heart every time I see it because musically, I think he's a genius, but he's drowning underneath these, his illness because he doesn't do what he needs to do. What do you guys, I, what do you other my, guys? Just my uh, creatively, I, I just like whip stuff out um, when I'm hypermanic and it's just like, if, I have to I have to be like at least a little bit manic to write well. Interesting. Um, and uh, but it's scary because if I'm too manic, then I could end up in the hospital. Yeah, absolutely. I think for me, Clive Barker showed me that it's okay to be weird. I mean, it was between Aberrat and the Hellbound Heart. Oh, um, 
Aberrat was such a fantastical story. Yes. I mean, and the hard part was, is I didn't even get to read some of it as a kid because of the dyslexia. So it took me a really long time to get through some of that stuff. Like I didn't read Alice in Wonderland until three years ago. I mean, trying to read that as a kid was a nightmare. Oh yeah. But I mean, now there's an adult, I'm looking at all this stuff and I'm reading stuff now because the writing has actually helped me get through my dyslexia because you're seeing the words and you're building the words. And now when you're reading it, you can see how the words are created. And for me, at least that's how I was able to deal with a lot of it. But Clive Barker, anything he has written hands down has showed me that it's okay to be different. I mean, I can't identify as a homosexual male, um, just being straight, but I identify with feeling alienated. I identified with feeling, you know, not normal to what everybody else is normal. Yeah. And to me, that's when I gravitated towards the extremer horror because I'm like, well, here's a group of all these other writers and people that are suffering similar emotions, but different circumstances. And that's where, at least for my writing style, I've always been pushing perspective because I want you to get the perspective of the asshole to understand why they're an asshole. I want you to get the perspective of the normal people to understand they don't know how to deal with that because that is reality. They don't know how to deal with us weirdos. I think our, our strength as survivors of trauma actually has made us strong to the point where we need uh, more extreme forms of horror to actually generate those feelings of fear, adrenaline, uh, excitement. What, what do, what do you guys think? I do hardcore baking shows. <laughs> I would love to watch a hardcore baking show. Actually, <laughs> Halloween Wars is my jam. So if anybody else? I actually really love the Great British Baking Show. <laughs> and see, I like like Hell's Kitchen. That's my type of, you know, horror. <laughs> Worst cooks in America. Give that a go. Yes. <laughs> Put me in a kitchen with Gordon Ramsay and I will cry. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I would make Gordon Ramsay cry. <laughs> kind of mean. I would love to see that. <laughs> I would love to see that head. head. <laughs> well, what are you guys reading right now? I'm reading nothing. Uh... <laughs> nothing. <laughs> I'm reading worm. Oh. Oh, Donna Latham just talked about that one. She said it yeah. was amazing. It was a uh, recommend um, from a review. What else, you guys? Oh, what's that? Death in Toledo by Frank Edler. I'm doing oh. the audiobook of this one right now. It's hysterical. I highly recommend Death Gets a Book. It's hysterical. That's Frank my current read. So underrated people. I think people just need to appreciate he's writing cartoons in fiction. Yes. That's that's what it is. He's writing amazing Ren and Stimpy style cartoons in fiction. And it's delightful. So good. 
I'm reading lots of kids books at the moment not because I write kids books because I home educate two young kids so we are currently going through Roald Dahl's titles currently almost finished Matilda and in book number six of the Chronicles of Narnia on my <laughs> it's fabulous it's a total journey through memory lane and the kids are loving it um on my personal reading list I have just started reading the mammoth book of folk horror is edited by Stephen Jones and I've got too many like yourself <laughs> I've got too many on my TBR an overwhelming amount of books that I desperately yeah. want to read <laughs> and you open up that Kindle and they're all just sitting there going pick me pick me pick me <laughs> you know the Chronicles of Narnia is one of my best childhood memories actually because my dad would read a chapter to us every single night before we went to bed and uh we went through all the books and that was the only series he ever did that with but we went through all of them and I just love them I love them they are magical I'm so glad your kids are going to have that same memory because it's just oh makes me all warm inside <laughs> <laughs> re alicia anything on your lists right now that you are reading um i am actually in between books at the moment i just finished one about a week ago and i've been i've got so many different personal projects going on now that i i had to like step back from reading so i don't really have anything <laughs> i wasn't joking <laughs> That's okay. I, I, I'm at a point where I'm going like days and days uh, up to a week without reading simply because I just don't have the time to fit it in. <laughs> I cram books in on the weekends if I can. Uh, I've got like two books coming out on St. Patrick's day <gasps> and I'm working on my dark beauty and the beast. So I'm just like, <laughs> yeah. Ari, what about you? Are you reading anything right now? Right now, I'm reading All Smiles Until I Return. <gasps> Aaron Beauregard. Yes. How is it? All That's right. It. I'm only about three chapters in. I just started it yesterday. It's in but, the pile. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, 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 uh, it's, it's going to be a good one. Oh, awesome. Well, friends, thank you so much for hanging out with me tonight. I really appreciate it. If people would like to contact you, um, and even more so, if people would like to buy your books, where can they find you? Let's just go around the room. Who wants to go first? They can find me at Amazon if they want paperbacks and Godless if they want ebooks. I'm slowly trying to get all my Amazon ebooks over to Godless. And if they want to talk to me, they just hit me up on Facebook Messenger. I almost always check it. So. Natasha, what about you? Uh, well, my site, all my links are on my site, clanwitch.com. Um, again, I'm on Facebook and Instagram too. Books can be Amazon. I think I've only got one title on Godless at the moment, so I need to get them moved over a bit too. Because um, I've got a new release coming out on the 8th of May, which is really funny that you're talking about mental asylums and stuff because ah! it's called Asylum Daughter. And uh, it's all kind of centered <laughs> around a mental asylum that I grew up next to. <laughs> you grew up next to a mental asylum, I'm so I did. And I will tell you, 
the noise from the asylum alarms going off in the morning at 8 a.m. haunt my dreams still. So this is a book I had to write. <laughs> oh my God, I can't wait. <laughs> Send me a reminder so that way I can make sure I get it because I love asylum books. Uh, my books, Rumple Chronicles, is actually part of an asylum as well. In there, oh, so <laughs> exciting. I'll, I'll happily send you a coffee. I'll send you one. <laughs> That'd be great. <laughs> you too. Oh, yes. Ari, what about you? Where can they find your stuff? Uh, <clears throat> I, I have the one collection on Godless, and that's it so far. Um, but I'm on Facebook. I'm probably other people have to do a lobotomy for, right? <laughs> <laughs> Lucas. So I'm in all the social meds, uh Facebook, Instagram, so Twitter. Um my books are on Amazon for the paperbacks. If you want to buy paperbacks of Cocksucker, I highly recommend get them from Grindhouse, uh Grindhouse Press. Um the only other book I'm really shelling right now is going to be Lost Words in a Dream. Now, to most people's surprise, I actually wrote that at the same exact time I wrote Cocksucker. So if you want to see my range of how weird my brain is, uh, go back and forth between those two books. If one was too extreme, Lost Words in a Dream is probably for you. Beautiful But you book. can definitely get those on Amazon and Godless. I will recommend the paperback paperback of lost words in a dream comes with original artwork it is beautiful it's beautiful i have my copy right next to me right now <laughs> your heart what where can people get your books <laughs> you're a priest <laughs> yes <laughs> on godless also on Amazon, but for more money. So, so no point. <laughs> Go godless. <laughs> Unless you just want to give me more money. <laughs> then Which by all fine. means, yeah. go ahead and do it. But yeah. Bezos gets a cut of that too. So, yeah. <laughs> So you could just go to godless and buy like 50 copies of one. Uh, that would oh, be one, two, two. <laughs> yes, do that for all of these people. <laughs> Buy 50 copies of all of them. I mean, most of these are 50 cents, so it's like losing a ramen dinner. You're good. Right? <laughs> Mine's free. <laughs> there you go. So now y'all have no excuse. Go download it. So for more information on these incredible people, please refer to today's show to today's show notes or come join us on the Mothers of Mayhem official Facebook group. I think everyone who is in this room right now is a member of that group. So that is a fantastic place to reach out to any and all of us. Um, I want to hear you shriek. Huh? I want to hear you shriek. Me? Yeah. No. Ah, that's actually my daughter that's my nine-year-old that's my <laughs> Catherine <laughs> um you can oh very important if you 
you or someone you love has been struggling with mental health issues or thoughts of suicide, please see today's show notes for links to various mental health resources across the world. I will have everything as much as I can find and as much as I can fit in the notes I will have posted for you there. Um, When we do get to airtime of this episode, I will try to also post information and resources on the FB group as well. And you can find links to our various social media accounts in the show bio and by visiting Linktree on any of my TF that I just read accounts. As always, you can send your questions, comments or insults to our email address momextremepodcast at gmail.com it's mom.o.m.extremepodcast uh do not forget to send dildos to christina (laughs) dm me if you need her mailing address i will hook you the fuck up (laughs) and this is something very dear to uh both re shambrook and my heart i believe i will never stop thanking singer songwriter amigo the devil for uh number one being a absolute fucking genius (laughs) who rocks my world and sets my heart on fire um but also for allowing us to use his song hungover in jonestown is our theme song and for his amazing support of the podcast i still can't believe it please go check out his music you will not regret it thank you Song is delightful oh my god Uh, pretty much everything that amigo the devil writes is delightful small stone is uh, makes me cry every freaking time he's just incredible so thank you again guys you have been amazing we are gonna wrap it up here so until next time go raise some hell children and make your weird book mommies proud bye everybody Life is a joke And death is the punchline Life is a joke Death is the punchline Bye.